Ladies and gentlemen, this is Kabbalah and Coffee, and it is fantastic to have you here. Sandrine, it's great to have you here. It's good to see you. Good morning. Um, okay, so um, I am going to just for the... Oh, you guys, look at you already muting yourselves and everything for the clean background. No need for me to make an announcement. You guys, this is not your first rodeo. All right, we have a lot to talk about, and it's going to be hectic in a good way. All right, a lot of hectic Kabbalah. So we find ourselves, today is the sixth day of the month of Kislev. And the month of Kislev is significant. This month is significant because it is the month in which we have the holiday of Hanukkah. So Hanukkah, okay, so Hanukkah is the 25th day of the month. So if, you, if you're doing the math, that means that Hanukkah begins, today is the 6th, and that is the 25th. So we're talking about, what, 19 days or so, give or take? Yes, 19 days till Hanukkah begins? Okay, so we know Hanukkah is a, um, a celebration of miracles. And there's a few different miracles, a few different um, miracles that are being celebrated with Hanukkah. So number one, we have the military victory. The victory of the few over the many and the weak over the mighty. And then we have, of course, the, the, the miracle of the oil which is that they, after they reclaimed the temple, after the few were able to defeat the many and the weak defeating the mighty, and this is, of course, referring to the, to the great battle between the, uh, the Syrian Greeks, the Hellenists, and the Jews in ancient times. Um, so after that, when they rededicated the temple, they only found enough oil to last for one day, and it was going to take eight days to, to create more fresh, pure olive oil. Miraculously... It lasted for eight days. Okay, fine. So that's, um, that's, that's the typical story that we know with Hanukkah. We have the dual miracle, the mil- military victory, uh, military uh, miracle, as well as the oil miracle. But the bottom line is that the holiday of Hanukkah, and really this whole month, is associated with miracles. Miracles. Um, Karen, good to see you. Good morning. So this entire, this entire month, is known to be a, a, a month of light. And the truth is, a lot of it has to do also with various Hasidic holidays that fall out during this month. So we have, for example, um, special days, Rosh Chodesh Kislev and Beis Kislev, the, second day, the first day of Kislev, the second day of Kislev. We have the ninth of Kislev, the tenth of Kislev. Um, and, and to get into each one would require way too much time. But I'm just letting you know that there are many various uh, Hasidic, mystical, spiritual holidays, Kabbalistic holidays. And then you have Yotes Kislev, the 19th of Kislev, which is called the Rosh Hashanah of Hasidic philosophy, the Rosh Hashanah of Chabad Hasidus, which is the day, uh, a few hundred years ago, that the first Chabad Rebbe, the Alter Rebbe, Rabbi Shneir Zaman of Liadi, was freed from Tsarist Russia imprisonment. He was, um, he was imprisoned on, on charges of high treason. He was released on the 19th day of Kislev, and that becomes a day to celebrate the proliferation of Kabbalah and Hasidic thought. Okay, so my point is that not only Hanukkah is a celebration of oil and light, but also throughout this month we have celebrations of light and also oil, because frankly oil represents Kabbalah. Why does oil represent Kabbalah? Because oil floats, oil separates, oil rises to the top. 
kind of like the idea of something higher, something deeper, that is not just mixed in with the rest, but something that's a little bit more elevated, a little bit more of a, of a higher experience. And so I want to begin today's class by talking about the nature of miracles. Now, some of you join me shortly after Passover, I believe, it's been a few months, right? Shortly after Passover, we did a series called Miracles, right? Remember that? Some of you were there. I know definitely some of you were there. Yes. Okay, good. Um, I want to revisit some of the concepts that we explored in that, in that course. Number one, even if you were there, it's been a few months. And if you weren't there, um, there's a lot to talk about. And I'm going to add some new ideas that we did not talk about covering that three-part three series about the nature of miracles. So I want to begin by talking, let's define what a miracle is. So what is a miracle? We talk about Hanukkah is a miracle. There's a Hanukkah miracle. So the, the, the few defeating the many and the weak defeating the mighty based on the laws of war that shouldn't have happened, right? The Jews should not have been victorious over the mighty Syrian Greek army. It shouldn't have happened. The fact that it happened, oh, it's a miracle, okay? Or the fact that oil that should only last Imagine you're driving, yeah, you find yourself, let's give a good example, you find yourself deep in Texas. Why Texas? I don't know. You find yourself in Texas, and you're in the middle of nowhere in Texas. I've driven, I drove recently to Texas. So I have a brother-in-law who lives in Frisco. He's called the Frisco Yid. Anyway, so here's the point. Um, you're driving, driving, and you ha you're not paying attention because you're having so much fun on the road who pays attention to the gas tank, suddenly you get that ding or bing or flash, whatever it is, not a prophetic ding, bing, or flash, but one from the dashboard that says, my friend, you are down to like a tiny drop of gas, an eighth of a tank or whatever it is, whatever, whenever that signal goes off. Like the last thing where there's like red and yellow and it like has all those colors, yeah, that's where you are. And you look around, you're like, oh, man, I'm on a highway. And, okay, so, okay, all right, all right, next exit, next gas station, I'm there. You're driving, 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 and there's nothing. So imagine if you're on an eighth of a tank, and the next exit is in 300 miles. I'm not saying that's true in Texas, but just say, right? Right? It could be, maybe, I don't know. I, I didn't... It sounds like a math problem. Sounds like a math problem, right. So you're driving east, right. Okay at a velocity of 65 miles an hour, 75 miles an hour, here's the point. Imagine if that eighth of a tank lasted a full tank. Oh, that would be a miracle, right? Imagine if you were able to get the mileage from that little bit of gas for the whole trip. That would be very efficient. Oh, you might be driving an electric vehicle. No, so that would be a miracle. So that, think about it. That's kind of like the Hanukkah miracle, in contemporary terms maybe, where you have only a little bit of oil, that lasts for the full expanse of the eight days. That's a miracle. The question that the Kabbalists think about, this is what Kabbalistic philosophy explores, is so what actually is a miracle? So what is a miracle? Like, what's going on? Because, you know, most of us would say, you know what a miracle is? It's, it's God's in control. God's doing something. But the counter-argument is, when is God not doing something? Are you with me on the counter-argument? So like, a miracle is God making the oil last for eight days. And what about when the oil lasts for one day, as it's supposed to? Is that not God? You with me on my question? It's kind of a rhetorical question. 
You're telling me that that's not God, that's nature. But to the Kabbalist, that's not a good answer. Because who's nature? How do I call nature? Who's nature? Right? What is this mysterious force called nature? Nature is also God. So what do you mean? It's like a miracle is God. And nature, see, now you can't finish that sentence. Good. How is it? I'm saying a Kabbalist. How are you going to finish that sentence? So a miracle is God doing something and nature is? Yeah? Is what? Who's nature? It's also God. So then what's the difference? Still God doing something. Still God doing something. Exactly. So now the question is, are you with me in this? So what's the difference? So why is one called nature and one called a miracle? That leaves scholars to conclude that the only difference between nature and the miraculous is frequency. I don't mean like tuning into the radio station in the middle of Texas on the road. No. Who tunes in like that anyway? What is that? Like who has that still? Oh, you do. Good. I love those things. I love that. Um, digital. It's too easy now. It's like you got to get that right in the sweet spot. Um, I remember as a kid at night. I'm sure it's still like this, but it's just the who. I'm usually teaching at night, so I'm, I'm, not, I'm not like trying radios. But we used to get in Pittsburgh radio stations AM from like New York and Florida. I don't know how that's, I guess that's a thing. Chicago. Chicago. Amazing. Ah, the good old days. All right, so here's the deal. Um, so what's the difference between that which we call nature and that which we call a miracle? Again, some scholars say, some Jewish scholars say, there is no difference. God is flexing with a miracle, but God, that's what the kids say with like, you know, demonstrating stuff. And that God is also flexing with nature because after all, who and what is nature if not also God? Because of course, Judaism believes in a very, very strict understanding of monotheism, which means no monkey business. God is in control of everything. So God's in control of nature. God's in control of the supernatural. So it's the same God. So on this level, you would say, you know what? There's no difference between the sun rise between sunrise in ancient, in ancient Judea, right? There's no difference between the fact that the sun rose on that 25th day of Kislev, you know, a few thousand years ago, and the fact that on that day the oil lasted or started to last for longer than it should have. There's no difference, right? The fact that the sun rose the day before doesn't take away from the fact that God is controlling it. Controlling it. And the fact that the, that the oil is burning for longer than it should, yeah, that's God controlling it. I'll give you an example. Talmud tells a story about a rabbi who was known to be a miracle worker. And this rabbi was known, like if you needed a miracle, he was your guy. His name was Rabbi Hanina ben Dosa. That was his name. Rabbi Hanina, the son of Dosa. So, and again, the way he's referred to in the Talmud is he was accustomed to miracles. He, like, he knew miracles. Well, one time, one time it was Shabbat Eve. In other words, Friday late afternoon. And it was time to light the Shabbat candles. Now, you know that Jewish custom is, one second, 
Jewish custom is that we light Shabbat candles 18 minutes before sunset. Why 18 minutes before sunset? First of all, 18 is a great Jewish number. Um, because sunset marks the beginning of Shabbat, after which we're not supposed to kindle new flames. So we want to light the Shabbat candles as close to Shabbat sunset as possible, but not after sunset. So we have to do it before. So the custom is we do it 18 minutes before sunset. Just a little bit about, about the mitzvah. This is one of the seven rabbinic mitzvot. Um, by the way, 613 mitzvot in the Torah. Plus seven rabbinic mitzvot equals... 613 plus 7 is? 620. 620. 620 is the numerology of the word keter, which means crown. We spoke about crown being, um, keter being the loftiest of within Seder Hishashal, which within the order of creation, it's the loftiest dimension, even higher than Chachma, Bin, and Dat. Keter is the crown, the lofty, transcendent energy. So anyway, that's, uh, that's alluded to in the 620 commandments, including the rabbinic ones. So one of the rabbinic mitzvot is Shabbat candles. So by the way, just, just as an aside, the tradition is to light. You can light a wax candle. People, some people light oil candles. It doesn't make a difference. Um, the idea is that it should, you should light it about 18 minutes before sunset and that it should go into Shabbat for a little bit. Um, ideally, throughout your Shabbat meal. Traditionally, the mitzvah is done by women. So if there are women in the house, it's traditionally by women. If there are no women in the house, then men do the mitzvah. Okay. Now, let's get back to this, uh, to this idea, to, the, to this story. So Rabbi Hanina ben Dosa's daughter, one Friday night, comes to him in a bit of a panic. And she says, Gewalt! Tati! I'm sure she didn't say that because it's a Yiddish uh, statement, and this is going back a few thousand years. Dad! Let's just make it, you know. Dad, I made a mistake! I, by mistake put vinegar into the, into the lamp instead of oil. Has that ever happened to you? Probably not. But it happened to her. She put vinegar instead of oil. It happened to me. I'll tell you a story. A story and a story. I'm sure you love this. So I was in yeshiva in Morristown, New Jersey. Um, and the yeshiva in Morristown is... So anybody been to Morristown, New Jersey, that part of the world? No? Okay, it's, it's very beautiful. It's very, um, it's very secluded, at least the area where the yeshiva, the yeshiva is. I think it was like a former monastery. It's like on top of a hill, and it's very isolated. There's, it's beautiful. There's like forests and trees all around. If, if you're looking to study Torah in, in a yeshiva in a very secluded, very conducive environment to, to study because there's not much else going on, that's your place. So I studied there for a few years. I spent some really uh, enjoyable years of, of studying in yeshiva there in Morristown. And we had, so my roommates and I in, in the dorm in the yeshiva, so, and everything was in one building. It was like a five-story building, massive building with like a cafeteria and study halls and dormitory rooms, everything built into one, one space. You really didn't have to go anywhere. You could actually be in yeshiva and not leave the, theoretically, and not leave the building for months at a time. I'm not saying that's healthy or not. I'm just saying like everything was so contained, right? A post office, I'm kidding. Who needs a post office? You're in yeshiva. So let's get back to, uh, they had pay phones back then. So you could, call, you could call home. So what happens? My roommates and I, we decided that we're going to have a bit of a kitchen situation. In other words, yes, there's a kitchen and a cafeteria, but we're going to have our own, we're going to make some food. So we had like, 
You know those uh, portable little uh, oven things, like a, yeah, a portable tabletop oven? Yes, you're with me? Good. So we have one of those in like there. Like a toaster oven. Like a toaster oven, exactly. Toaster oven. And, and then, you know, once a week we would go to town. You know, there's a town in Morristown. Morristown, there's a town. And we would go shopping and get some stuff and whatever. So one time for, Sh- for Shabbos, in honor of Shabbat, we decided to bake a cake. A Duncan Hines, who's baking from scratch, right? Not happening. So we took one of those, you know, a Duncan Hines mix. Yeah, Duncan Hines is kosher mixes. They still do today. And you get it. All you need to do is add some water, some oil, some eggs, and you're good to go. There you go. You can make cake. You can make brownies, whatever. So we figure, in honor of Shabbat, we'll have our own cake. It'll be good. We'll have our cake and we'll eat it too. Not a problem. So there we are. It's Thursday night, and we're making cake. And it's shortly after Hanukkah, shortly after Hanukkah. And I see in our closet, my roommate had, he had like bottles of oil. Yeah, I know it sounds very uh, cliche for Hanukkah, but there were literally bottles of oil in like this, like a squeeze bottle, like a frosted, like aftermarket squeeze bottle, like not like a bottle of olive oil that you buy from the store in like a glass or you know, green plastic container, but like, you know, an aftermarket thing that you would repackage. But I remember it was like, it was like an oil bottle also, right? So anyway, so I, I, I use it for the oil. I mix it in. And I notice as I'm mixing up the batter, and my roommates are around also, we're all, we're all participating in this, but I notice as I'm mixing it up, it's, it's getting a little frothy, which it doesn't look, doesn't look right. It's a little frothy, <laughs> yes. So anyway, I, and, I, and so I'm, I'm looking and I'm thinking what's going on. And then I think I'm, I even used the second one, I, whatever, it was like something's wrong. Oh, I know what I thought. I thought that maybe there was soap left in the bowl that we were using to mix I thought there was a little residue in the bowl. Anyway, it turns out, long story short, that that bottle didn't house the oil, but it housed like shampoo or something. So I was, and obviously we didn't eat it, we threw it out, we didn't experiment. Here's the point. Rabbi Hanina Mendoza's daughter used, not shampoo, but she poured in vinegar that she thought was oil. I can re- my point is, I can relate. I also once poured in something that I thought was oil, and it was something else. So she pours in vinegar, and then she lights it. And then, right after she lights it, you know, once you light Shabbat candles, at that point you've accepted, and you said the blessing, you've accepted Shabbat on yourself, which means now you can't extinguish, you can't light. That's why even just, just a, um, a, a, a point of note, after lighting Shabbat candles, the custom is not to blow out the candle. It's to just put it down and have a safe, you know, um, receptacle where the match can burn out on its own and not, you know, obviously cause a conflagration because that's, that's not the, the Shabbat spirit. Um, but the point is that you let it, you just let it burn out because once you've lit the Shabbat candles and said the blessing, at that point, for you it's Shabbat. So she comes to her father in tears and she says, Dad, I lit vinegar instead of oil, and it's going to go out right away. So Rebbechenir Mendoza smiles and he says, the same God that said that oil should kindle can also say the vinegar should kindle. And that night, guess what? The vinegar acted like oil and the vinegar kindled. So what's the point? The point is like this. What makes oil a substance that's good for kindling, right? Who decides or what makes that happen? 
You know the answer. Hashem, God, right? So he's saying the same God that, that allows oil to burn should also allow vinegar to burn. In other words, it's no less of a miracle for the vinegar to burn than for the oil to burn. Because what makes the oil flammable? I don't know if the right word is flammable. What makes it, um, whatever, uh, a fuelant, right? What makes it, what makes it a fuel? Also Hashem. So on this level, what I'm trying to say is on this level, on one level, you could say that there's no difference between nature and a miracle. It's both God exercising God's desire for the way things should work. The only difference is that a miracle is less frequent than nature, right? So the sun rises and the sun sets every day. Oil burns as a good fuel every day. Vinegar, once in a while, right? The oil lasting for eight days instead of one, once in a while. So the only difference is frequency, or let's say, you know, the splitting of the sea back in ancient times. So the water stood up like a wall on both sides, and the Jewish people passed through on dry land. Okay, so the nature of water is usually to collapse, right, or, you know, to, to, to gather down. And this time it stood up. But is the fundamental nature of water, what, who created that fundamental nature of water? It's also God. So really both are expressions of God. You with me on this? So then what really is the difference between nature and a miracle? Is it only frequency? Or is there something fundamentally different between them? So this is where Kabbalah comes in and shares with us a little bit of additional insight. And, and I'm going to go through a few concepts, and I'm going to try to string together a few different ideas. And I'm hoping that, it's, that we're going to go in a deliberate enough fashion that it's understandable. But at any point, please jump in. If, if, if the threads, because I'm going to be tying a lot of different strings together, if at any point it becomes confusing or, you know, you're missing a connection, just jump right in and, and, and ask me to clarify, and I'll, I'll try my best to clarify. So I'm going to draw, tie together, hopefully, four or five different ideas, parallel ideas, that hopefully are going to explain on a deeper level this um, nature-miracle duality and what it means, ultimately what it means for us also. Okay, so number one, the first duality we have is nature and the miraculous, which I'm saying now maybe is not such a duality as we think because they're both God, but nonetheless, we're going to try to explain why, wherein they, they, they are distinguished from each other. So Kabbalah says that nature and a miracle correspond to two divine names. Elohim and Hashem, known as Havaya. Let me explain that. When you look in Scripture, when you look in Tanakh, in Jewish Scripture, you find seven names for God that are used. Seven, seven types of names that, 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 uh, that God is referred to at in Scripture. But the two most common by far are the names that we call Hashem, and Elohim. Now, both of those names are not written like that. And the reason why, why we pronounce it differently than the way it's written is because we are so reverent of God and God's names that we don't even want to pronounce it the way it's written. We do a slight modification. Even in English, we wouldn't write the names as they're written. Even the word God, some people don't like saying because it's the English form of, of God's name, so to speak. 
And in English, we actually do write, many people write G with a dash, G dash D, instead of G O D, just to indicate a reverence, a, uh, a higher than element. Okay. So the two names by far are Hashem and Elohim. Hashem is again not written like that, but it's written Yud followed by He, followed by Vav, followed by He. It's known as the Tetragrammaton, the four-letter name of God. And it's in Kabbalah, and I'm going to switch to this word right now, it's not referred to as Hashem, this name, but it's referred to as Havaya. Havaya is, if you reorganize the letters of Yud, Ke, Vav, Ke, those four letters, if you put them in a different order, then it's not the original sacred order, and you can pronounce it, but it's a euphemism for that name. So we have Havaya is the four-letter name of God. That's considered to be the holiest name. And then you have the next name, which is the, the second most popular, if you will, not that it's a popularity contest, but the second most common name in Scripture for God is Elohim. And again, it's not written like that exactly. It's written with a hey in the middle, which would be Elo followed by him, but we pronounce it Elo followed by Kim, Elohim instead of with the hey sound. Again, as a sign of reverence, we don't pronounce it the way it's written. Nonetheless, these are the two names of God, Havaya and Elohim, that appear most frequently in Tanakh. The first name that appears in Torah is actually Elohim. In the first verse of the Torah, Bereshit bara Elohim. In the beginning, Elohim created. It's only later that Scripture uses the word, the name Havaya, and after that, Havaya is typically... It, it goes back and forth, but Avaya is known to be the most common name and the highest name. You should know, parenthetically, and this is something that I, that I, I usually mention in these types of conversations, the idea of the documentary hypothesis, which emanated out of Germany a few hundred years ago. And the hypothesis is that Torah is, is a collaboration is a document that was cobbled together from multiple authors, each that had their own style of writing and referring to God. And that's why you find different names of God used throughout Scripture. You have the J author who loved Havaya. You have the E author who loved Elohim. You have the, the P author who loved the priests and all things associated with that who wrote Leviticus. And then you have the D author who wrote Deuteronomy. And that's, how, that's that documentary hypothesis. You talk to a Kabbalist and they'll say, what are you talking about? Every time the Torah uses Elohim and Havaya, it's intentional. It means something else. It's like imagine you're reading a story and you're reading a story about two different characters and somebody tells you, you should know that, I mean, and the story makes sense. The pl- everything makes sense. And then somebody tells you, you should know this book is actually not a book. It's written by two different people. Each one wrote about one character, and somebody else wrote it together and put, put together two characters. But it's really one character. You're like, what are you talking about? I'm reading the book. It makes sense this way. Okay, so that's what's going on. So in Kabbalah, it makes sense. Elohim and Avaya. So I should probably mention, traditional Jewish thought does not subscribe to any documentary hypothesis. Torah is divine. Torah is of divine origin. And the fact that the Torah uses, the core of it is the fact that it uses different names of God. The fact that it uses different names of God is intentional. It's not accidental. It's not um, a byproduct of, you know, a hatchet editing job, somebody not using, you know, um, a find and replace in Word, you know, changing all of them to be, uh, to be, to be uh, uniform. 
No, it's intentional. Every time you use Elohim, it means one thing, and Avayim means something else. So, and, and Jewish philosophers and scholars and, and Kabbalists, not in response to any you know, claim otherwise, but proactively explaining the significance, explain the significance of these two names. So I'll tell you what it says in Kabbalah. And this is something that you've, you might have heard me say before. Kabbalah explains, Kabbalah explains that Elohim refers to the divine modality. Elohim refers to the divine modality of concealment, divine concealment. And Havaya, hi Mariana, welcome. And Havaya refers to the divine modality of revelation. Which means that God himself can be in one of two forms, so to speak. Again, None of this is literal, and we have to strip any kind of physical, limited understandings when we speak of God. Nonetheless, this is, we still have to use our own language, because what other language are we going to use that makes sense? So this is the best way that we can explain it, but don't take it so literally. It's, it's kind of talking about conceptually these ideas. So again, Elohim refers to God in the modality of concealment and limitation. Self-concealment and self-limitation. And Havaya refers to the modality of infinite, open revelation. So it's either closed or open. Let me explain. The opening verse of the Torah tells us that God created heaven and earth. But Elohim created heaven and earth. Why Elohim? So the mystics tell us why. Because creating a world, and this is something we've discussed countless times in this class because creating physical beings from an infinite source requires a lot of tzimtzum, a lot of concealment, a lot of contraction, a lot of self-containment. Because if God were to unleash just infinite light and infinite energy, you wouldn't end up with a finite being. In order to end up with finite beings, you have to contain the energy. You have to contain the light and limit it to produce limited creatures. So, Elohim created limit the, 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 the finite heaven and earth. Heaven and earth are finite, and what creates that, not Havaya, because Havaya wouldn't create a finite environment. Havaya would create an infinite environment. What creates a finite space? Elohim. That's why the opening verse uses Elohim. And in general, Elohim is always used in Scripture to denote, even Rashi says this, even it, 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 the, the, the Kabbalah um, dovetails beautifully or connects beautifully, synchronized beautifully with, with the other Jewish philosophical teachings on the matter that tell us that Elohim is the, is the name of God that's used when denoting din, which means judgment, and Havaya is used to indicate compassion. Well, it's the same thing, right? What is judgment? Judgment is being strict and it's being discerning and it's, it's the modality of, 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 of contraction, right? When you're analyzing something, you're, you're bent over, you're, you're, you're looking, there's a, there's a squeezing of, right? When you're squinting, when you're analyzing, when you're judging, when you're discerning, when you're withholding, think about the hand. When you withhold, you squeeze inward. There's a contraction. It's all, it's all the same idea. So what, what Kabbalah says about Elohim 
And what Jewish philosophy and classic traditional scholarship says is really the same thing, just using different terminology, speaking on different levels. But it's really the same thing. So, elokim means din, judgment. So, for example, usually when some, something's coming down, right, it's like, uh-oh, it's usually the name in that story, it's used as elokim. Not always, but it's, all, it's also used referring to creation, because creation is the same thing. Creation is a limiting of the light to produce finite creatures. Havaya is the, op- is the opposite. Havaya is love and compassion in traditional terminology, which means an openness. While openness in mystical terminology means vul, unlimited expression, infinite expression, open, infinite expression, no, no, no barriers. Well, open, infinite expression from an infinite God yields infinite beings that are of an infinite nature and not a finite nature, which is why the name Havaya is not used in the account of creation, because the name Havaya is ineffective, I mean, sorry, but is, is not the best, I'm, I'm not judging, I'm just saying, it's not the best name. It, it doesn't express the creation of a finite environment. Does that make sense? Make sense so far? Yes? Okay. This connects perfectly with nature and the supernatural. Okay? What is nature? Nature is divine energy in a box. Divine energy in a formula that's very specific, that doesn't change. Right? Nature is a pattern that typically is not broken. Any pattern, any definition like that means a limitation. Because nature means that it's stuck to this nature and it doesn't possess a different nature. Are you with me on that? In other words, nature means a certain pattern and pattern evokes a limitation. Which is why nature is synonymous with Elohim. Nature emerges from the name Elohim. And what about the miracle? Well, what is a miracle? A miracle is, right? What is a miracle? A miracle is something that breaks the bonds, something that shatters nature, something that says, oh, you thought I was stuck in a box, that it could only be this way, that only oil kindles but not vinegar? That's Elohim limitation. But Havaya can do anything. Havaya is the infinite... Let me just be clear here. God can do anything. But the two names indicate various modalities. Modality of, of Elohim is creating limitations, which is nature. Nature is a limitation. This has this nature, that has that nature, and the two natures don't cross over. Each one has its nature, that's a limitation. When you talk about a miracle, you're talking about something that transcends or defies or breaks or shatters nature, and that's an expression of the name Havaya. Again, to explain... Havaya is the infinite energy. And when infinite energy, infinite light and energy, divine energy expresses itself, it expresses itself in no rules, no limitations. Why should oil have all the fun? Why not vinegar? Right? Who said that only oil can light, can kindle? Maybe vinegar also should kindle. Oh, oh, but that's not its nature. Well, who made nature? Nature is a limitation. Let's just remove nature. Adam is asking, does it shatter or break nature? Excellent question. 
Kabbalah talks about different forms of miracles. So this is a little bit more um, advanced, in, not necessarily advanced is the right word, but this is a little bit beyond what I wanted to explore, cover today, but there are different forms of miracles. And this is what we explored in the Miracles course a few months ago, is there are miracles that shatter nature, miracles that work within nature. There are different forms of miracles that express different nuances in this dynamic. But one form of nature, one, sorry, one form of miracle is definitely a miracle that shatters or breaks the boundaries of nature. Others bend, others work within, and you might not even notice that it's a miracle. But either way, there are different forms of miracles, but the, the, the common denominator is a miracle that you and I notice as a miracle means that we have just been met with or we have encountered an emanation from a different space. It's not an, a, a, an Elohim energy, it's a Havaya energy. I asked before the question, if everything comes from God, even nature, so then what's the difference between miracles and the natural? Right? I asked that question before, right? Remember I asked that question? If nature also is divine, if God is also making nature, so then what's the difference between that which we call nature and that which we call a miracle? And I'm giving you an answer. Right? Step one of the answer is, well, nature is emanating from Elohim, which is the energy in a box. That's why nature is in a box. This has this nature, and something else has a different nature, and a third thing has a third nature, and everything is stuck in its way, right? Things operate based on their nature, and they don't, they don't, they don't go out of that. They don't go out of their box. Nature means a box that something operates within, and they don't go outside their box. All of that is, a, is, a, is an Elohim-spawned, Energy. Are you with me on this? That's Elohim. Elohim creates boxes. Elohim creates limitations. That's nature. When you encounter a miracle, yes, nature also comes from God, but it comes from God in the form of Elohim. Concealment, contraction, limitation. When you encounter a miracle, yes, it's God also, but in a completely different modality. It's God in the modality of Havaya, which is taking off any boundaries and limitations. This is now an, uh, um, an expression that, that, that breaks, shatters the concept of construct. It doesn't need construct. When, when the force, when the flow of Havaya comes into the world, it doesn't assume the form of the box. It breaks the box. Are you with me on this? Yeah, the, when the infinite light enters the finite reality, one way that it reacts is by shattering what it comes in, ca in contact with. And when it shatters, that's what a miracle looks like. That's what a, mir a miracle looks like when the water is able to stand up instead of collapsing like it should with the splitting of the sea. So that's a force of Havaya that says, don't tell me what water should do. Right? Because this is now, we're, we're, we're beyond the rules. This is Havaya. Donna, you had a question? Yes, please. So can we consider nature an ongoing miracle and what we consider miracles to be one-off miracles? Yes, that is the way it's explained in some texts of Jewish philosophy. Kabbalah takes it a step further and says it's not just a matter of frequency, but it's also a matter of which name of God it's emanating from. In other words, what you're saying is step one. And what I'm saying is let's continue moving, let's continue I'm expanding our, our understanding of what a miracle is by 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 associating more concepts with it, and that's going to help us expand our understanding. So, uh, named for God or a higher level? 
It's not about higher or lower, it's just different modalities. So, in other words, on our, our first, the first way I explained it is that both nature and miraculous are both done by God. The difference is frequency, right? If a miracle, if, sorry, if God is doing something every day, we call that nature. If God does it once in history, we call it a miracle. But it's the same God that's doing it. That's one level of understanding. And on this level, there's no difference other than frequency. But then we, 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 we start plugging in Kabbalistic concepts, and now it, it, it gets a little bit more, more fleshed out. So the first, the first association, and I said I'm going to do a few associations, the, st- the first association is between uh, um, connecting miracle and nature, nature and miracle, nature and miracle with Elohim and Havaya, with the two names of God. And what that does is, it tells us that not just are both coming from God, but both are actually coming from different modalities of God. So nature is coming from God going like this, and a miracle is coming from God going like this, right? The closed hand, so to speak, is nature, and the open hand is the miracle. Two different modalities. Hold on one second, let me just make sure this makes sense. So two different modalities. Now, are they both coming from God? Of course. But Kabbalistically, we say one is coming from Elohim. By the way, the, the numerology of Elohim, with a hey, not with a kuf, the numerology is 86. Aleph is 1, Lamed is 30, hey is 5. What are we up to? 30 plus 1 plus 5 is 36, right? Yod is 10, 46. Mem is 40 is 86. That's 86. 86 is the same numerology as the word hateva, which means the nature. Wouldn't you know it? Even numerologically, it it lines up. For those of you that took the numerology course, I mentioned it then. So the gematria course. So so hateva is also, hey is five, tes is nine, whatever. You do the math, it's it's there. So what's the point? Elohim is 86. And Hateva, Hateva, like you know the sandal company, Teva? Mm-hmm. Hateva means the concept of nature, the nature, is, uh, is 86. Not the sandal company, I'm just saying that's, they took the word, it's an Israeli company, they took the name Teva from the word for nature, which is Teva, because it's uh, where, when you're out in nature. So here's the point. Um, it's not just that they're both from God, but it's frequency. It's they come from different modalities different expressions of God's reality. So God could be expressed in concealment, and that's nature. And God can be expressed in expression and revelation, and that's a miracle. And on a very simple level, on a very basic level, think about it. When nature is running its course, do you and I typically see God? The answer is no. Unless you meditate, but that's something else. That's what we add on to the experience. That's what, that's what I mean when I say that nature comes from Elohim. Elohim is the modality of God hiding, essentially. Right? God concealing. And when you see a miracle, you're like, oh my God, guess what? That's Havaya. That's God's expression. That's God's revelation. Right? So again, if you understand Havaya and Elohim, the two names of God, Havaya is God's expression. God making himself known. God saying, here I am. And Elohim is God hiding it lines up perfectly. And nature hides God. Nature hides God. And miracles reveal God. Right? Um, Toba. So when you have unbounded evil, 
Is that coming from Elohim? Unbounded evil. Which modality is that? Unbounded evil is a product of free choice. I, I, we can't fit everything necessarily into the into the into this paradigm of, of Avayan Lakim. There's also a concept of free choice. What I'm talking about is when things are coming from above. You're talking about when human beings perpetrate something. First of all, I would say unlimited evil. I would say since evil is perpetrated by human beings, since human beings, since evil is perpetrated by human beings, there is a limit. Um, but you're asking about something of free choice. That's a little bit different. That's a little bit different. Free choice. Saying well, not right now, but it's also said that everything comes from God, including evil. So where does that fit in? I, I, you're asking a good question, but I, it's going to take us too far off of off of the off of the the trajectory that I that that we need to be on. You're asking a good question, which is where is the source of evil, and why do bad things happen to good people, and 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 you know, is God also at the core of that? Excellent questions, but it's gonna. That's another class for itself. That's not the question of miracle versus nature. That's a question of good and evil, which is again an important to topic, and we'll have to ha we'll have to address that. But we'll have to address that in a full way. And I, I don't want to do it even on one leg because it's not it's not fair to the question. The question is strong enough; it really needs its own conversation. So right now we have. So I want again. I want to line up a few things because I want to I want to keep on moving aside. Uh, moving along, we have parallels that I want to I want to connect. So we have. It would be good if I had like a like a timeline here, but or whatever, some sort of you know linear thing. But you can you can write it down for yourself. Um, we have so again we have nature and miracle that are connecting with or or parallel to Elohim and Havaya. Okay, so we're drawing a connection between those two elements. And then, and then we have, right, so Elohim and Havaya, and that's nature and, um, nature and miraculous. So now I'm going to add another element to the equation, which is known as Da'at Elyon and Da'at Tachton. Okay? These are, these are concepts that we've mentioned a few times in the past in various classes, including Kabbalah and Coffee. You may remember it, but... I would imagine that likely it was mentioned only, you know, fairly infrequently enough that it's probably not one of the concepts that is uh, super, um, super ingrained. So let me, let me explain a little bit about this. So we have um, dat elyon means the supernal perspective, and dat tachton is the lower perspective. So, to explain the, the meaning of that, Dat Elyon is the vantage point. This, I'm going to give you an oversimplified way of understanding it. It's the perspective of God. And Dat Tachton, lower perspective, is the human perspective. So, what's, what's the difference between these two perspectives? The way it's encapsulated in Kabbalah and, and I, I want to say the words again, just so you know which words I'm saying. Dat, you know, dat means knowledge or perspective or, you know, your, your sense of, it's not just understanding, but your connection with a thing. It's like your truth, the way you, you perceive things to be. So that's dat. So there's two, there's, two, there's two perspectives. 
of reality. There's God's perspective and our perspective, and they are completely opposite, the way Kabbalah d- describes it. Let's start with us. That tachton, the lower perspective, our perspective is lamata yesh, lamayla ayin. That below exists, above does not exist. There's two ways to understand this. Either a person says, I'm real, God's not. That's one way of understanding it. Or on a higher level, it's I am real, God is also real, but I can't fathom God's reality. In other words, I know that this is yesh. This is, you know, some people bring their A game. The cup is back. The cup is back. You asked about the cup. It's been in my office. I think I told you it's in my office. It's in my office, locked away for Corona, but now it's back. Now we're, listen, the cup is back. I'm bringing my A game. Anyway. So what is that tachton? Lamata yesh, lamayla ayin. On a very crude level, it's I exist, I don't know about God. But that's not really what it means in Kabbalah. What it means is, I know my nature of existence. I know what it, if this is, this is, yesh means is, this is, this is. I can touch it, I can feel it, I can see it, I can hold it. This is, this is, I'm pointing now to my table, right? This is, to my jacket, this is, that, I don't know. Not that I don't know if it exists, or if it's real. I know it exists. I believe in God. But what kind of is is it? Ah. What kind of isness is God's business? Right? What kind of isness is it? What does it look like? What does it feel like? Can you touch it? Right? What kind of existence is God? So we say the lower perspective out is Lamata Yesh. I know this. We exist. Lamaila above. Ayin. Nothing. Not nothing, nothing, but nothing of our concept of, of is. It's a different sort of is. You with me so far? What about above? How do you translate that again? Lamata yesh, Lamata yesh means below. Here, yesh is. Lamaila above, ayin is not. But again, not meaning that we don't believe that below exists, sorry, that above exists, but that the existence above is radically different than our existence. So we can relate to the lower terrestrial existence, i.e. here, this stuff. We cannot relate above. And what's God's perspective? Or dat elyon, dat elyon means the higher perspective, is lamayla yesh lamata'ayin, the inverse, the absolute opposite of that. And that is above is... And below is nothing. So again, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to repeat these two perspectives. Imagine, you know what? I'm not going to repeat it. Imagine, I mean I will, don't worry. But I'm going to give you an example. Imagine you were God. Nope, imagine you are God. I know, I know. I'm, I'm, <laughs> we're, we're treading dangerous territory. No, but really, imagine you're God. Yeah? So what's real to you? You're God now. What's real? What's real? You, right? You're real, right? 
What about, um, what about creation? Is it really real? Is it just an extension of your reality, but it doesn't really have its own energy? That's the way Kabbalah explains it. That's, that's God's perspective. God's perspective is, this is real. I'm real. You think you're real, but you're just an extension of my reality, which means that you don't have your own isness. You with me on that? So God's perspective is radically different than ours. If you want to use very crude terminology, and this is, I mean, don't take this literally. We take ourselves seriously and God takes himself seriously. But everyone's taking themselves seriously. Both perspectives. Right? Yeah? We take ourselves seriously and God, we don't know. It's, you know, it's, a, it's an enigma. And God takes himself seriously. I don't mean literally like that. But God knows himself, so to speak. And us, not that we're an enigma because God created us, but less real than God's own reality. So one way to think about this is when you're facing another human being. You're facing another human being and you lift up, you raise your right hand. And they see the hand being lifted on the left side. Adam says, yeah. Yes, yes, Adam, excellent. So, so imagine you're facing somebody else and, and you raise your right hand. To them, it's on the left. To you, it's on your right. So it's exactly, it's going to be fundamentally opposite because of the different perspectives. It's because of the different perspective. It's what, what to you is right, to them is left necessarily. So what to God is yesh is to us ayin, and what to us is yesh is to God ayin. Let me use English terms. For what God, to what, for what is reality to God, no, to, to, to God, what is reality is to us the unknown or the, the, the impossible to know. And for, and what to us is reality to God is not the unknown, but the, the not so real. This is, in fact, also related to nature and miracles. Because both perspectives are true. Both dat elyon and dat tachton are true. You see, up until now, I've explained that one is God's perspective and one is our perspective. And you might have thought that our perspective is necessarily limited because we're limited beings and we can't see God so perfectly pure and true, and so therefore we don't understand and we cannot fathom God's truth. But if we were able to see, then we were able to, then we would be able to see, and then, then we would have a higher perspective. And so our perspective is not so true. It's not true at all, actually, because of our limitation. If we were able to see the truth, we would see the truth. But Kabbalah says that that's not true. That tachton is not just a limited perspective that we have. That tachton is also a divine perspective that has truth beneath it. And to understand this, we need to introduce the fourth concept, which is what it says in Tikkun Zohar 57. It says, the Arein Sof is lamayla mayla aren't ketz, u lamata mata aren't tachlis. 
It says the Aryan of the infinite light, is above, 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 without limit, and below, 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 without end. It says in Tikkun Zohar, which is an ancient, original Kabbalistic text, that the Aryan of the infinite light, is both infinitely above and infinitely below. It's lamai lamai la up up up, adding kets without limit and lamata mat and below adding tachlis with no end either below. So it's above and below without limit. It extends infinitely above and extends infinitely below. That's the statement in Tikkun Zohar. The question is, what does it mean? So many think that it means that, well, infinite light means that it infinitely extends in all directions, above and below. And it means essentially that God is in every space, that the Arain Sof, the infinite light, is in every space, equally, without limit, without end, above, below, inside, outside, right, left, center. God is everywhere. The infinite light is everywhere. Okay? But then I have a simple question. Then why didn't Tikkun Zohar say, Leis Aser Which means it's an Aramaic, because this is all written in Aramaic. It should have just said, there's no space devoid of God. Right? Wouldn't that evoke the same idea? Why does it say that God, that the Aryan Sof, the infinite light, is up, up, without limit, and down, down, without limit? Why not just say, the infinite light is everywhere? Isn't that an easier, more straightforward way of saying it? Right? Just say, where's the infinite light? Everywhere. And you're done. Why up, up, and down, down? What's going on? Lamaila, maila. Adding cats, lamata, mata, and takhlas. It's high, high. It's up, up, without, without limit, and down, down, without end. What's, why say that? It's such an awkward statement. Which leads the Kabbalists to conclude that that's not what it's saying. It's not saying simply that God is everywhere. It's actually expressing, and this is very important, that in the Arain Sof itself, in the infinite essence, you have two modalities there already. The Lamai Lamai Arain Ketz and the Lamata Mata Arain Tachlis. It's not just saying that God is everywhere. It's saying that in the Arain Sof already, in the highest origins, you have two different modalities and expressions. The Extending upward without limit and extending downward without end. What does that mean, though? So here is the final concept, and hopefully all the concepts will be tied together after I explain this one. And I just want to tell you, just taking a step back, what I'm sharing with you today are some of the loftiest Kabbalistic concepts that have been explained over thousands of pages of Kabbalistic literature, over literally thousands of years, and my attempt is to distill it into in language and context that is understandable for you and I today in 2020 using our modern way of thinking and modern terminology. So understand that this is necessarily challenging, but I believe that we can pull it off. So that's, that's my preamble. Here we go. Say it again. The Zohar. 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 Yeah, was the one right? Oh, the Zohar was written. Tikkun Zohar and the Zohar, they were written out, 
the different, there's a, if you, there, there are debates about the origins of it. But traditionally, the, 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 the Jewish traditional understanding of Zohar is that it was authored by Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, who's one of the authors of, the, of the, one of the sages in the Mishnah, in the Mishnaic time, dating back about 2,000 years. Times of the end of the Second Temple Era. The Second Beit HaMikdash. So the first century of the Common Era. Okay. So what does it mean? Lamai lamai la'arein ketz. Which means that the arein self extends upward without, without end or without limit. Means that in the, within the arein self itself, there is a tenuah, there is a movement of lifting up and away from everything else. In other words, there's a movement within the Arain Sof of toward self-containment. That's what it means that the Arain Sof extends upward without limit, upward into itself, so to speak. There's a movement inward and in, to be contained, self-contained. That's the first half of the statement. The Arain Sof, within the Arain Sof itself, not a filter applied to the infinite light. This is very important. It's not that you have the infinite light, and then on top of that, you apply a filter of tzimtzum, a filter of concealment, a filter of contraction to cut the light. This is going deeper and saying within the Arain Sof itself, by virtue of the fact that it is Arain Sof, which means unlimited, infinite light, it therefore possesses all possibilities, including the possibility of self-containing the light and not revealing it. Are you with me? If something is truly infinite, it has the ability to share and the ability not to share. And if it's infinite light, it cannot be said that it's locked into the nature of light, which is expression and revelation, because that would limit the infinite light, paradoxically. If you told me that the infinite light has to, by its own definition, extend infinitely, then I'll tell you that you are now limiting God and the infinite light. Because if it's truly infinite, it can also maintain an element of infinite concealment of that light. You with me on this? Sort of? Sort of? Okay. So again, it says in Tukunei Zohar, what is the Arain Sof? It's Lamaila Maila. It extends up, up, Ad Ein Ketz. Without limit. In other words, there's no limit to its ability to self-contain and not be revealed. At the same time, it's lamata mata ad entachlis. It also extends below without any limitation or end. Which means the Arain Sof, the infinite light, also has the power to extend in every place and be present in every experience without end. It has the ability to infinitely influence. So, what this teaching teaches us, you see, typically we think 
that there's light. When we think about these Kabbalistic concepts, there's the infinite light that's shining, and then there's a tzimtzum filter that's applied to it that cuts the light, like a curtain right behind me. So you have the light that's shining, and then you have a secondary item that cuts the light to produce you know, the darkness or a light that's acceptable for you know, that which is beneath it. But now what, what, what the Zohar, what Tukun Zohar is telling us is that it's not that the tzimtzum concealment is only a byproduct of something external, an external force that's applied to the Arayin Sof, but the Arayin Sof itself possesses inherently the tenuah, the movement, to withdraw or extend upward into itself and to not be revealed below. The Arayin Sof, la la Arayin Katz, means that the infinite light has an infinite ability to be self-contained and not expressed. And at the same time, it has the infinite ability to be expressed below. Does this make sense? Because again, here's the paradox. If you told me that light, the infinite light, must be infinitely expressed, I will then reply to you that you're now limiting the infinite light, paradoxically. You're now limiting the experience of that infinite light by saying that the infinite light has to be in, in, in a modality of infinite expression. So therefore, Kabbalah tells us, no. We cannot apply even the limit of infinite on the infinite. The infinite also has to have the real infinity, the real unlimited power to also be able to be withdrawn infinitely and not expressed. Both of these express, I'm going to give you an example. The power of the infinite, the answer. I'm going to give you an education example and a parenting example. Let's bring this into 2020. Parenting and giving guidance. You could say that how do you express parenting? How do you express guiding? How do you express mentoring? How do you express educating? It's by sharing. It's by giving, it's by teaching, it's by preaching, it's by leading, right? Yeah. But everyone knows that at a certain point, the most effective way to parent and to educate and to guide is to not say anything, is to not speak, is to not advise, is to not preach, is to not darshan, you know, preach. It's to allow the other one, the student, the child, the mentee, to give them the space to operate on their own. That itself is an expression of good parenting. Are you with me? There's two ways to look at it. Either there's no parenting going on, or it's actually, there is parenting going on, and it's good parenting. In other words, I'm going to say the same thing about the Arayin Sof that we said about the Arayin Sof, but I'm going to say it with parenting. You ready? Here we go. Same thing with teaching. Same thing. But let's just start with parenting. I'll say it again with teaching. A good teacher, sorry, a good parent knows when to hold back 
and when to give. True? Yes? Yes. A good teacher knows when to teach and when to allow the students to do the talking. Right? So a good teacher knows when to withdraw and when to communicate. But here's the thing. Is the withdrawing not teaching? Of course not. There's two, well, there's two types of withdrawing. There's two types of withdrawing with teaching and parenting. You can have a parent, the child gets a certain age, and the parent doesn't know what to do anymore. So the parent says, you know what? That's it. I, 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 I don't know what else to say. And stops parenting. That's not what we're talking about here. That, but that, that could be a thing. But that's not an expression of parenting. That's an expression of giving up parenting on some level. But then you have another reality. And that is when the parent is parenting by keeping their mouth closed, by not saying anything, by letting their child step up on their own two feet. It's a teacher not giving the answer to the student but maintaining that uncomfortable silence because no, knowing that that's the only way the student is going to come up with the answer on their own. That's effective teaching. So you know what a teacher needs to have the ability to do? The teacher has to have the ability to teach by giving. And the teacher has to have the ability to teach by withholding. To teach by giving means you're giving the answers. To teach by withholding means you're giving space for the other to come up with the answers. To be a good parent, you have to be able to give the guidance and you also have to give the space for the child to give their own guidance. Not because you have nothing else to say. Not because you're out of, you know, you're, you're at wit's end. But because this itself, not because, this itself is a form of good parenting, is by not saying anything right now. Arayan Sof means the infinite force of God, which expresses itself in two ways. To be infinitely present and to be not present to allow us to be present. Are you with me on this? These are the two modalities. means that God has the ability to self-contain to what end, for what purpose? To allow us to fill the space. And means that God has the infinite, the infinite has the ability to fill all the space and make his presence known. Does that make sense? So it's not just that there's infinite light and then at Simpson, contraction that, that, that shuts down the light. Within, it's like parenting. It's not like the parent is, is or the teacher, the parent is, is sharing, is giving, is guiding, and then there's some external force that says, no, stop. It's that the parent or the teacher themselves, they have the ability to teach by not speaking, to parent, to mentor by not advising.
So what's the source of nature? The source of nature is The source of nature is God's ability to infinitely withdraw. Because by infinitely withdrawing, God gives us the space to exist on our own terms. And that creates the perspective of Lamata Yesh that creates the lower perspective on reality. God, God's ability to withdraw within himself, right, to, to, to self-contain, to self-conceal, that ability is what spawns our perspe- lower perspective that we exist. It's like when the parent stops parenting, not because they can't, but because that's also parenting, the child can be a mensch, can have their own identity. That's what the, that's what that is, the lower perspective is. We have our own identity. We exist. That's a divine perspective also. It's not the higher perspective, but even the lower perspective is divinely ordained. It's gifted to us by God, who has the ability to self-contain. And by self-containing, it grants us the space to exist and to be self-aware. And God's second modality, which is, or other modality, which is to be infinitely present, well, that's that elyon. That's basically the perspective that God is everything and everywhere and nothing else is real other than God. And that... And that, my friends, is the source of the miracle. The miracle is when this reality of the, of the Arayin Sof, of the infinite light, that it's lamata matanitachlis, that it can go down into every space and fill every space. When that happens, we call that a miracle because that is God, that is infinite light revealed here in its full sense. That's another hand organizing the events below. As opposed to the other modality of the Aryan Sof, which is self-contained, which then allows us to rise and self-define into the definitions that we know as nature and self-consciousness and self-awareness, etc. I'm going to check in. And I hesitate. No, I'm kidding. I want to check in. Does any of this make sense? Yes? Yes? The best example I can give, again, is parenting. Think of an example of a parent who gives space to their child. The parent has an opinion. The parent has a perspective. The parent has wants and wishes, desires, loves, fears. But the parent wants to give space to the child. And the parent has the ability to self-contain their own advice and to not share it. To allow for the growth of the child. And when that happens, the child exists on their own two feet. The child is standing up on their own two feet. And their perspective is, I am. I am my own mensch. Because my parent is giving me space. I have my own identity. What happens if the parent suddenly mixes in? And, cha- and, and, move th- and moves things around. 
I don't think the child is going to call that a miracle. But that's what we're saying here, right? That's what a miracle is. A miracle is when the parent, when God, says, you know what? At this point, I'm going to mix in. I've left you to your own devices, and I left nature to its own devices, left your perspective, right? But now I'm going to mix in. I'm going to let you know that I am ever-present. This is one way of me letting you know that I'm not just stuck in self-containment, but I am here as well in an infinite fashion. Make sense? No? Yes? Okay. So what we've connected is four things. Nature and miracle is Elohim Havaya, is Datachton Dat Elyon, is Lamaila Maila Arin Ketz, and Lamata Mata Arin Tachlis. And I know I used all Hebrew words, so let me, let me do it in English. Nature, I don't think I did all Hebrew. I started off English and then I went, went uh, off the deep end. So let me, let me bring it back. Nature, you know what? I'm going to do each one. Instead of doing the duality each time, I'm going to do one side of the duality and then the other side. Nature equals the name Elohim equals the lower perspective, we exist, equals God has the infinite ability to self-contain. So if we spin it back from that and, and do it in reverse order, here's how it works. The Arain Sof, the infinite light at its core, has the ability to self-contain and to give space. Because of that, we have a perspective that we exist because God has given us that space. Because of that, nature is nature, which means existence on its own terms. And because of that, no, I'm sorry. Because of that, we have Elohim, or, or that is the nature of the name Elohim, which is nature, which is existence on its own terms. That's one side of the coin. But it begins not with an external twist to the infinite, but it's one of the expressions of God's infinite power. God has, the inf God has unlimited ability, including the ability to self-limit. You with me on that? It's, it's, it's paradoxical. But if God is truly infinite, God is not bound by infinite itself or infinite expression. If God is truly infinite, if a parent is a really good parent, they can also have the ability, they also have the ability to not speak in this moment, to allow their child to make a mistake. If an educator is a good educator, they have the ability to not jump in and give the answer to the math problem when the child is struggling with it in the class. You ask the kid, Johnny, what's, uh, you know, eight times eight? And they're struggling. Yeah, they're trying to come up with the answer. So what do you do? You jump in or you don't jump in? A good teacher has the ability to not jump in and to give the space for the child to come up with the answer on their own. That's a good educator. If you're always giving the answers, if you're always giving the, the, the answers to the kids, too much top-down. That's lamata matere taklas. That means that you can even, you know, give the answer in every situation. But there's another expression of your presence by you not being present, but it's still you being present. Ah, you with me on that one? When the teacher doesn't give the answer, that's good teaching. The teacher is there. So it is expression of the infinite. Are you with me on this? It's still expressing God. Okay. So we have on one side of the coin, two sides of the coin. Right? On one side we have God's ability to self-contain. 
which spawns our perspective that we exist, which is associated with the name Elohim, which is nature, and that's where nature comes from. Existence and definition on its own terms, with its own reality, its own perspective, its own rules, and that itself expresses the greatness of God because all of this is God being quiet. And then you have the other side of the coin. And that is God also extends infinitely in every space. And that's expressed by the perspective that God is real and this is not real. And that's expressed by the name Havaya, which is infinite expression. And that's expressed by a miracle, which basically says to nature, you think you're real? Not anymore. You think your rules are so real? I just broke it. That's what a, that's what a miracle says. Oh, water has to sit to collect downward. Nope. Not when God's here. <laughs> right? Vinegar can't burn. I don't know what you're talking about. Not when God's here. In your own little sandbox, yeah, but when God is here, when God's infinite ability is right here, expressed, there's no limit to what can happen. There's no rules, and that's what we call a miracle. Does that make sense? Turns out, Turns out, that both miracles and nature are expressions of God's infinite ability. God's infinite ability to give space forms nature, and God's infinite ability to inform or to Effect is what spawns miracles. So God's infinite ability to, to withhold, to conceal, self-conceal, self-contain, is what creates nature. God's ability to open up and reveal is what creates the miracle, is what spawns miracles. Both are expressions of God's reality, God's truth. One final connection, because I told you there are four or five. Here's the number five. The fifth element to all of this is the notion of chesed and gvura. It's, it's same, it's all, they're all parallel to each other. What is chesed? Chesed is giving. It's openness. And gvura is withholding. Well, you guessed it. The idea that the Aryan Sof is Lamaila Maila Aryan Ketz. God is able to self-withdraw to that highest space God can withdraw and not be expressed. That's a modality of Gavura, of self-withholding, of holding, withdrawing. And it's synonymous with Elohim. It's synonymous with nature. It's synonymous with the lower perspective, the attachdon, the, the right, we're, we're real reality. It's all it's all parallel to each other, and the other perspective or the other reality of the Arain Sof that it's also lamata mata tachlis that the Arain Sof goes low, low, low without any limit. In other words, God's infinite power is expressed everywhere. That's a modality of Chesed, which means unmitigated, unlimited giving, which is an expression of Havaya, which is transcendent. The name of transcendence and unlimited expression, which is the idea of dat elyon, 
that God is the only reality and God's reality is everywhere. And that's also the expression of a miracle, which is that God's reality, God's playbook is the only playbook and our, what we thought was nature, is irrelevant when it comes to God's playbook. So we've added one more wrinkle to it. Chesed and Gvura. And this is going to take us back to our discussion inside which it looks like we don't have time to jump into the text today. But we've laid some extremely important groundwork for, one second, Karen, I'm going to get back to it. We explained some, we, we laid some extremely important foundations and groundwork for our discussion inside. Because, and here let me just draw the, the connection that we're going to do it inside next week. Because what we're trying to describe is, not describe, what we're trying to get to in our understanding is, how do we bridge opposites? How do we fuse together two opposite energies? Which has a very real and practical ramification. How do two people who see things very differently, who don't see eye to eye, how do two people, how can two people get along? And at the core of it is understanding that in essence, we are all one. And all dualities begin from a space of oneness. And so what we're describing today is how some of the greatest dualities that we think of, right? The difference between Havayin Elohim and nature and miraculous and that Elion and that Tachton, higher perspective, lower perspective, they seem completely contradictory. Like they can't be in the same room together. They're so different. One perspective says that this is real and that's who knows. And one perspective says that's real and this is who knows. How can they, how can they have a conversation together? Completely different perspectives. And what we're seeing today is that although they manifest as different perspectives, they begin as expressions of the same infinite light. They begin as expressions of the same. It's the same infinite, the same power of infinity that is both infinitely contained and infinitely expressed. It's the same power of Ein Sof that drives both. It's the same power of Ein Sof, of infinite, that, that, that drives Chesed and Gvura, Havaya, Elohim, nature, miraculous, Dat Elyon, Dat It's the same Ein Sof. And it's that same Ein Sof that powers, the same infinite energy that powers Torah which Torah is, is, is uniquely and utterly united with Ein Sof. It's that same Ein Sof that powers Torah, which also contains, wouldn't you know it, this duality, this seeming duality. Because Torah tells us things that we should do and things that we should not do. And this is the dual structure of Torah. Those things that represent chesed, in other words, partake in that, and those that represent gevura, Withdraw and withhold from that. And Torah, by containing both things that we're to do and things that we're not to do, is expressive in the same Torah, in the one Torah. There's do this and don't do that. In, in, that, in the one body of Torah, that expresses the notion that in the same main self, you have withdrawal, and openness. You have containment and openness, concealment and revelation within the same Ein Sof. 
Which brings us back to our, to our idea, and we're going to read this next week, that when we study Torah, and we're able to bridge our, the link our mind with the wisdom of Torah, and our heart with the energy of Torah, and our perspective with the Torah's perspective, and we're able to understand the duality, how the duality is not from a dual place, but from a single source, then we're able to bridge all of the dualities in existence beginning with the cosmic dualities and ending with the dualities that exist within ourselves and between us and the other. And so all of this, in essence, is either you could call it the macrocosm or the microcosm, however you want to phrase it. But it's a cosm, I guess, of what ails us as human beings, which is the split personalities that we have inside and the splits in personality that we have with other people outside of ourselves. The greatest ills that ill us, I don't know, it's probably redundant, the, the, the greatest things that, 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 that drive us meshuga are the splits that we have inside of our own psyche and the splits that we have between ourselves and the other person that don't allow us to be truly united with love and friendship and, uh, and connection. And when we understand the nature of duality and how the very nature of duality comes from the same or ain't sof, it's not that there's one and then there's a mask on top of it. The duality. Two different forces. It's the same Arain Sof. Infinite light. That's both Lamai, Lamai, Larin Katz and Lamata, Matarin Tachas. It's the same oneness that has both expressions. It's the same one Torah that has both expressions of Chesed and Gvura. Do this, don't do that. When we understand that, we can understand it takes the edge off the duality and it makes us realize that we can look a little bit deeper and find the things that bind us together in unity as opposed to driving us away from each other. Today was more of a class, today's class, Kabbalah and Coffee class, was a bit more theoretical than perhaps usual. Maybe not, but I think it was a little bit more theoretical than usual, a little bit more abstract maybe than usual. But I hope the concepts made sense. And you should know that it all connects back in a very practical, real way. When we know at the core, on a very simple, basic level, that my soul and your soul are one and the same, we're more likely to get along. When we believe that we're split, we're more likely not to get along. When we know at the core that even if I'm this way and you're that way, it's the same DNA, it's the same stuff, the same essence, we're more likely to get along. That's why, by the way, the body doesn't fight with itself. You're walking barefoot in your house and you stub a toe, you stub your toe. When was the last time your hand started punching your foot for being so clumsy? doesn't happen because you know you're all part of the same organism if we knew if we believed if we could see the truth that we are all part of the same organism doesn't mean that, uh, that we didn't stub our toe but what's the reaction to that it's a radically different reaction it's not you stubbed your toe it's I stubbed my toe with the same toe the Kabbalah of the stubbed toe and this is, where, this is where we end with. 
When we realize that everything, all of the duality, comes from a place of oneness, from the same Aryan Sof, we have a chance. We have a chance of healing the fractures. If we know that we're one, and it's just about getting back to that place, we have a shot. If we believe that we're just different, and we're just separate, then who says we have a chance? Kabbalah fiercely believes and maintains and teaches that we are one at the core. And it's just a process of reminding ourselves of who we truly are. Thank you very much for joining me today for Kabbalah and Coffee. I hope it made sense. I hope your mind was not too (laughs) confused. I hope it was expanded. Um, I saw a lot of things coming through the chat. I'm going to open up the chat box. Hey, Alex. Hey, Mariana. Good to see you guys. Um, How's it going? Good to see you guys. Thank you. you Pleasure. Pleasure. It's great to see you guys. Live from Chile. Welcome. Yes. That's right. Um, So look, if we know that we're one, we have a shot. And that's my message for this week. When you find yourself on a practical level, when you find yourself getting worked up about someone, towards someone, meditate on the fact that all of the duality, even the greatest split in existence and definitions of existence itself, is all stemming from this same one infinite ability, let alone souls that are essentially the same. Right? We're talking about big definition splits are all one, let alone souls are, of course, all one. Meditate on that fact. Meditate that it's not that person but it's my toe that got stopped. So am I going to get angry and violent? I'm not violent, God forbid. But am I going to get all angry and indignant? Or am I going to approach it maybe in a different way with a little bit more compassion? So that's a meditation for this week. So when you stub your toe, don't get upset at your toe. Just put on shoes. Put on slippers. <laughs> when? And, and, and let's use this meditation to, uh, to help heal the rifts that exist between us. All right, thank you again for joining. Um, I'm going to jump over to, to, to open up the chat and take a quick look. I see a lot of chats came in. Okay, so, um, and, and if you have any questions, unmute and jump in, and, and let's, uh, let's rock and roll with this. Um, oh, so Adam is mentioning that the, the miracles may be other laws that we are not familiar with. Yes. There could be other laws of nature that we, that we can't even fathom. Correct. And that indicates that God is still in control, which is the idea of lamata mata nitachlis, that God, there's, there's one level where God, God removes himself, so to speak, and says, okay, you're in charge. It's like the teacher walking out of the class. That's maybe even a better example. Teacher, I don't know if this is done, but a teacher walks out of the class, either because that's it, they're frustrated, they can't teach anymore right now, I, I, I'm done, or to allow the students to engage in an activity and learning exercise that's better if the teacher is not, uh, is not um, imposing their, their uh, oh, no, you're doing it wrong, right? It's, it's giving, the, giving the children space, giving the students space. So, right. yeah, Toba, go ahead. Yeah. Okay, so all this wonderful nature is Elohim. How do we know when God is back in the room or when the teacher is back in the room? God, so the teacher is typically not back in the room when it comes to God. Just so you know. Just Where so you know. Other than miracles, 
miracles, when is Havaya expressed? God gave his lesson plan. He gave his instructions and he left the room. That's called the Torah. If, you, if you're wondering what I'm referring to, it's called the Torah. God said, this is it. This is the instruction. This is, look, you have a lot of work. Here's your work. Here's how to do it. Here's the, here are the, the tools. You have everything in the boxes on the shelves. You have all the equipment, all the tools. Here's the lesson plan. Here's the assignment. Go ahead. Do we want God involved? Then, then, then why are we here? If, you are, if you're a good teacher and you motivate your students, they're excited to do the project on their own. They're excited to figure it out. Um, you know, there's like, because of, you know, my wife Leah is, is very, um, very into education. And, and so, you know, she's integrating. And it's sometimes a little harder when you're trying to integrate, you know, modern educational philosophies in, you know, Torah study. Because like, Torah is typically taught a certain way, so how do you teach it in a different way? But she's integrating now, like, project-based learning, experience-based learning, with, it's like, you would think, you know, how can you allow students on their own to discover, you know, Torah or Talmud? It's kind of like, it almost, oh, it almost feels like you have to teach it top-down. But there's a way to do it where it's bottom-up. So she... What age is that that she is? She is now the, 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 the Judaic principal of, an of the Chabad Elementary School in town, which is first through eighth grade. So it, it, runs, it runs the gamut. It's a Montessori-inspired school. Um, so it's based on that premise, but it, it's a lot of work. Is an example of one project, a quick example? Yes, yes. So, the, so, so that's what I'm trying so, but, but before I give the example of the project, so there's been a lot of work in education with regard to general studies and other, in, 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 in allowing it to be kind of user-driven or student-driven. But not a lot of work has been done on this level historically with Jewish studies necessarily, right? A lot, oftentimes it's been top-down instruction. It's like, let me tell you what the Talmud says. Let me tell you what the, what the Torah says. This is, like, this is what it says. Let me share it with you. And yeah, you teach a student how to learn Chumash on their own. They can learn the Torah on their own, but it's, it's still almost like a style of frontal-based learning. So one, so one example of this is where she's taking, um, and this is something where, you know, she's using some of the things that we've, t we've discussed in JLI classes. We had a course a few years ago called The Dilemma. And in the first class of The Dilemma, some of you were, attended that course. And in the first lesson, there was a question. Well, what happens if someone commits a crime, intends to commit a crime, and commits a crime, but in the course of the crime's commission, actually benefits the victim? So, for example... So thieves, and this is a true story, thieves break into a truck and steal a laptop. Smash the window, steal a laptop. But in the course of the crimes commission, they broke the window and opened up, a, opened up a hole. There was a dog, it was a summer day, and there was a dog inside the truck that likely would have died based on the heat inside the truck. Because they broke the window, they saved the dog's life. So what do you say? They did a sin or they did a mitzvah? Which one? And the easy answer is both. But when you talk about, let's say they didn't steal the laptop. 
Let's say they just smashed the window and they were looking for a laptop, but they didn't find the laptop, right? But in the course of that, they saved, they saved the dog's life. So the question is, the question on the table is, are they liable for the window, let's say, for the glass? Well, they intended to break, they intended to damage, they did the damage, so they're on the hook. On the other hand, let's say in another scenario, another parallel universe, had they seen the dog and broken the glass to save the dog's life, they wouldn't be liable. The question is now, are they liable? So anyway, the point is like this. The point is they're taking cases, giving it to the students, giving them sources and letting them run with it and, and create a whole debate different teams and different things around it and engaging on that level. Anyway, my point is, it's about not teaching. Okay, so this is the case, and this is what halacha says, and this is what Jewish law says, and this is, this is it. But it's allowing the students to engage in it and come to their own conclusions. And at some point, obviously, you, you, know, you, you, you give them enough material that they can you know, come to, hopefully, you know, what's, what we would consider to be halachically correct conclusions. But the idea is that it's self-driven and the teacher could be out of the room and the students could not only out of the room during the time of, of, of school, but the students could be working on it in groups at night for homework on the weekends. And this is something that's, that's driven by the students. And I'm just giving you one example of, uh, of creating a little bit more, um, more space for the students. So we know this is true in education. So um, this is true, getting back to my point, this is true with God, right? So, um, Toba's question was, so like, where is God other than miracles? And the answer is, by design, God's out of the room. That doesn't, that, but that shouldn't be construed as God is no longer interested or God is no longer here. On the contrary, God is here in his absence. It's like the teacher is teaching by giving space, right? It's not, not yeah, Joy. God being within, like there's a spark of divinity in every person. Where's that's also true. Yeah, that's the true. We're talking about though in the forces of nature. We're talking about in in the obvious force of nature. There's also a spark of God, a soul in every living thing. But we still call that nature, right? We still call that teva. We still call that nature. It's not a miracle. We're talking about in the construct of nature versus miracle, nature meaning the world is left to run on it with its own devices, and miracle meaning that God is intervening and basically saying, I'm running the show here, and we live in a reality now, post-biblical times, where, the, where, the, mir where the, the, the way that God is running the world is in a way where God is giving us the space to figure it out. And it's by design. Joy. So... To follow up on your analogy, so uh, I, we've been given the instruction manual, we're here, we've been given the material, we're here, we're in our groups, and so to speak, God stepped out of the room. So what happens when we have a question, or we want to consult, or right. we say, um, could you explain a little more, could you help us with this? I mean, so develop that your analogy yes. further to cover that aspect. Excellent question. So I would say, and I don't know that I have a, an ironclad answer for it, because I think this is part of the struggle of when the teacher leaves the room. But we have two, two, av two primary avenues. One is consulting the instructions and seeing if maybe the answer is somehow in there, right? Because they're really good instructions. So that's. So I, the student, did 
didn't read the instructions deep enough or well enough, or et cetera. So I get that answer. Or, or consult with, with, uh, with another student that maybe together we can brainstorm and figure out, right? So like, can you help me figure out this? Is, is it in here somewhere? And then, you know, we collaborate and we, that, that's one avenue. And the other one is prayer, which is speaking directly to the teacher. And that's prayer. And, but then the question is, so how do we hear the answers? And then my response is, we'll, we'll, we'll get the answers that we need when we need it, when God wants us to get those answers. In other words, there is a way also to pick up the red phone, not the red phone, whatever, to, to connect directly with the teacher that may be out of the room. Well, and also to follow through with that then, it seems to me that what might be um, miraculous to me, because it's out of my ordinary experience, might be run-of-the-mill, do course, everyday occurrence for my good friend and colleague, Dr. Lazan. So I think that... Um, <laughs> I think that each of us maybe experience miracles in our own world based on our own limitations and our own understanding and the um, uniqueness of what's happening in the moment in our own personal lives. Exactly, exactly. And I think that that's part of, that's part of the, uh, um, that, 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 that partially addresses your question, which is, so how do we proceed when we're stuck? We lean on each other and we get inspired from each other and each other's knowledge and experiences and miracles and struggles. And that helps us hopefully continue plotting forward. One of the greatest truths of Kabbalah is this notion that initially everything was top down. And world 2.0, and if in the Secrets of the Bible course that we're doing now, every class really, if you think about it, I, I mean, I hate to give away the formula, but I, if you think about it, every class is the same thing. There's 1.0 and 2.0. There's Garden of Eden, post-Garden of Eden. Pre-flood, post-flood, right? There's Esau or Jacob before, Jacob after. There's always the, 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 the duality, the, 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 the 1.0, 2.0. And that's true, that's true with this as well. Originally, everything was top-down. And God says, that's not how the world ends up the way I want it to look. I want a world that on its own is a good place. On its own is a holy place. I want a world that self-generates its own refinement, utilizing the tools, of course, and the instruction and guidance that I gave it. But if God is making, it gets back to a very, very core idea. If God is making this world a good place, then what's the point? God already has that. It's called heaven. So why did God need to create this? Another heaven. Another reality that's the same. Bye, Sandrine. Good to see you. Right? Why, why, why does God need another imposed reality of goodness? God wanted to specifically create a platform where we would be, with our own input, creating the paradise. That's where we come in. So that's why the teacher is necessarily out of the room. You know, people say, so why in biblical times... What do so many miracles and then like no, no, no miracles? The commentators discuss it. It's because God, because the teacher first has to instruct. You can't walk out of the room from the beginning of the, of the year. Imagine you show up the first class and there's no teacher and there's no instruction. That's not going to work. That's setting it up for failure. So you need the teacher in the room. You need instruction. You need lessons. You need guidance. 
You need conversation. You need communication, open, reveal communication. And then you need written guidance. I mean, different ways, I guess, you could think of it. I'll also leave that recording. But, right, you need some sort of guidance and instruction. But then the whole point, the whole point, it's not a flaw, it's the feature. The whole point is that the teacher should leave the room and the student should get it. That's the whole point that we should get it. The whole point is not that God gets it. That God gets it, we know God gets it. He's God, of course he gets it. That God could create a world and impose that the world gets it, yes, God can do that. That's no kunst, there's no point, there's no trick, there's no accomplishment to that. What's the, what's the point? The point is that we should get it. For us to get it, the teacher has to leave the room. That's the only way. That's the only way we can get it. That's the only way that we can know that we got it. On every level, the only way for this to work is by the teacher leaving the room. It's the same thing with parenting, right? You're never giving your child the chance if you're always telling them what to do. So anyway, so what's the moral of the story? The moral of the story is that every, that, oh, oh but, wait, but here's the point. When the teacher is leaving the room, it's not not the teacher. That is the teacher also. You, the teacher's presence is felt in their belief and trust that the students will get it right on their own. The parent influence is felt in the trust and the love and the dignity that they're giving to their child to make their own decision. That's, we have faith in God and God has faith in us, exactly. But that's not, not the teacher. That is the teacher. In fact, one could say that's on an even greater level than the teacher needing to be in the room and not having faith in the students. Anyway, so that's, so, what, so what's the point? Kabbalah, what's the point? The point is that God is entrusting us with a mission and God is leaving the room by design. And the other point is that Susan should have a happy birthday and have a year filled with blessings, with revealed blessings. Oh, we ask always for revealed blessings, right? Because Blessings can come in many different forms, as we've discussed today. It could be concealed, you know, blessings, the, the nature stuff. But then, but we ask, especially on a birthday, for revealed blessings. And I also want to share with you that traditionally, as Kabbalah explains, on a birthday, a person has their mazel, which is their, their fortune, their light, their aura is shining even stronger than usual. And so you have the unique, unique ability, let me say that correctly, to bless others. So, use your power for good and, uh, and give good blessings to those that you love for, uh, for good things. It says, Mazle Goiver, your mazel is, uh, is increased on this day. So, use the power for good. That's, uh, that's my yeah. blessing. All right, good. Great to see everybody. Any other questions, comments? It was great today. Thank it's you. Great, it's a great birthday present you gave me. My, my pleasure. Glad that you were here. Glad that you enjoyed it. All right. Great to see everybody. Um, Donna, David, Karen, Joy, Susan, Toba, um, Joy, and Adam. Great to see you guys. We'll see you next week. Oh, also, one thing. 
We're starting a brand, a few, a few new things. So just take a look at the at the website, intentionjewishacademy.org. We have a new Talmud class that's starting in a few weeks. We have another class on business ethics, Jewish business ethics, that's starting in a few weeks or in a little, a little bit longer. And in, in the next few days, I'm going to roll out a few more things that are. Stay tuned. Stay tuned for some Hanukkah stuff. Adam, love you, bro. All right, we'll see you guys and everybody. All right, we'll see you guys. Take care. Have a wonderful week.